Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. All right, so we left off last week um, in chapter 3. And we were thinking about the wilderness generation, and we were thinking about the ways that the author of this letter uses uh, the, the story of the wilderness generation to warn the church that he's now writing to, wherever this may be. Again, we're not entirely sure. Uh, but in any case, he is he's using this as a warning. And he's saying that they had a good news presented to them, and they didn't listen to it, and uh, so they were in a sense, barred from entering God's rest. In fact, God says they shall not enter my rest because he swore this in his wrath. Uh, and so now the writer is saying, church, don't do the same thing because they ignored basically an earthly rest. How much more will it be to ignore the good news of Christ? What sort of rest then uh, will you be missing there? It's, it's, in many ways, it follows right along with this comparison of Moses to Christ. And so when we pick up in Hebrews chapter 4, we're still dealing uh, with, this, with this same thing. And so we'll pick up there, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So again, as we pick up here in this beginning part of Hebrews, uh, we see that the author is now reapplying this story of the wilderness generation again. Uh, he's warning them to take seriously these words so that they don't fall short while the promise of entering God's rest remains. Now, previously we've seen that promise of rest sort of spoken of in negative terms, that they did not enter my rest, they were not allowed to enter my rest. Uh, but now what the writer is making clear is that that rest is still available, just because the Israelites didn't enter into that rest doesn't mean that the church is not able to enter into that rest. The meaning of the rest was not exhausted by the earthly Canaan, which was entered by the children of Israel, not the Israelites themselves. And the spiritual counterpart of the earthly Canaan is the goal of, people of, goal of the people of God today. So the author urges his readers to push on and to reach the goal that is the rest of God. It's not going to be reached automatically, he says, and the church would do well to fear the possibility of missing it, just as the generation of Israelites which died in the wilderness missed the earthly Canaan. And I think that 
says something to us this morning about perhaps complacency. Um, we can sit around and, and be glad and thankful for the salvation that we have. We can sit around and be glad and thankful for the blessings of God that we have. And we can sit around and do absolutely nothing for God while we're glad about it. And I think that's one of the aspects that the writer is getting at. Of course, ultimately, what he's talking about is, is ultimate salvation. But I also, as I've said before, the way that the Bible tends to speak to us is sort of immediately and futuristically. And so I think this is a, a, a prime example where he's warning the church against that complacency, both about their end-time faith their end-time salvation, and also about what they are doing now. Because the reason that the Israelites wound up in the situation they were in is because they didn't act according to God in the moment. All right, so when we get to verse 2, we see the continuing parallel between the Israelites and the people of God, and this parallel in the writer's context is strong enough to use the disaster which came upon the Israelites to serve as a warning to the people of God. So the Israelites, as we've already said, had good news proclaimed to them, just as the readers of this letter had good news proclaimed to them. But what is the difference? The good news proclaimed to the Israelites did not have any effect because they did not appropriate it into their lives by faith. They heard it, they witnessed it, they saw what God was doing, but they didn't actually have faith in it. They didn't take the next spiritual step, if you want to call it that. The good news proclaimed to them told them how the God of their fathers, who had delivered them from Egypt, would bring them safely to the promised land and give them possession of the promised land, and that he would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to himself, if only they would obey his voice and keep his covenant. And so we have in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, uh, some mention of this. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then we see it again when we look at Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do. You shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. 
Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods it will surely be a snare to you. All of that to say they didn't do it. They didn't listen. They didn't obey. They didn't keep God's covenant. And so when the writer of the Hebrews brings this into our, our frame of reference, what he's telling us is it's not the hearing of the gospel by itself that brings salvation, but it's appropriation by faith. And if that faith is a genuine faith, then it will be a persistent faith. So it's not enough, and I think we all know this from various contexts that we've been in, it's not enough to tell somebody the gospel. They have to believe in it. And we've already talked about it in some ways, the nature of belief and the nature of faith, which is obedience and love, as Christ commands. So now verses 3 to 5, and I put them together because they're really sort of impossible to separate from one another. There he says, it is for those who have accepted the saving message by faith then, that entry into the rest of God is intended. And of course, the rest of God in Psalm 95, which is what he started quoting in, in chapter 3, there he refers to that as my rest. So the rest which God promises to his people is a share in the rest which God himself enjoys. Now the writer relates this rest to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, where God rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. And we don't need to understand that, that God completed his rest. It says... He started resting then. He began his rest. But the rest of God is not over. The Bible never says he completed his rest. It never says that he resumed creating. But that this rest is an ongoing rest that may be shared by those who respond to him with faith and obedience. And Jesus says something very similar in John chapter 5, verses 16 to 17. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Uh, he had performed a healing, and they were not very happy with him because he was doing this on the Sabbath. But Jesus says, Even though my father is resting, he continues to do work among you, and so I am also doing that work among you. And then we see the repetition of the words of Psalm 95 after the Genesis quotation there. They shall not enter my rest. And this emphasizes the identification of the one rest with the other. God's rest has remained open to his people since the work of creation was finished. But it will be forfeited by disobedience. Now when we get to verses 6 to 7, we see that it was disobedience which kept the generation of the Exodus out of God's promised rest, in spite of the good news which was announced to them. That same rest was still open for the people of God centuries after the wilderness period because the writer of Psalm 95 urges his readers to listen to the voice of God when, today, instead of hardening their hearts like their ancestors, also being barred from God's rest. Now what's interesting, one of those translation things you all know I enjoy, the Masoretic text does not say who wrote this psalm. Remember, that is the authorized version of the Hebrew Bible by Orthodox Jews. 
It does not say who wrote it, but the Septuagint says David wrote it. And so when we see it quoted here in Hebrews, the writer says it was through David that this was given. It was God who spoke in David, and God's word remains effectively vital long after it was uttered because it addresses the heart and the conscience of its hearers with the same convicting relevance as it had when it was first spoken. Of course, if God doesn't rest, and we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it would stand to reason then that we could not be uh, barred from God's seemingly, at least at this point, eternal rest. And we'll see as well when we get there something about the Word of God. But we'll look at verse 8. The author continues to explain why this rest is still available for the readers of the day. There he indicates that the rest given by Joshua can't be that final rest since David, hundreds of years later, speaks of another rest, of a rest that is still available for the people of God. So if the rest given by Joshua was a final rest, if it was a definitive rest, then there would be no need for God to offer further rest. But, as we've seen time and again, the author makes the argument that the new is better than the old. The new covenant in Christ is better than the old covenant. Christ himself is better than Moses. Uh, and now here, the rest of God is better than the rest promised and given to Joshua and those who followed him. So in Joshua, rest is linked to entering and possessing the land of Canaan. But after Joshua has defeated his enemies and Israel has inherited the land, we read that the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all he had sworn to their fathers. Of course, this is a typological rest given by Joshua. It anticipates Christ. It looks like Christ. Uh, it, it's a, it speaks to the Christ that's coming, much like Moses did when he said there will be a prophet greater than I. So the salvation and the rest given through Joshua are never intended to be the final rest. But the earthly rest that is given in the land under Joshua points forward toward the heavenly rest given in Jesus to the heavenly country and the city awaiting believers in Jesus Christ. Now when we get to verses 9 to 10, we have a rest which is called a Sabbath rest. And suddenly it's more particular there. In fact, let's read those verses. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That word there, Sabbatismos, means Sabbath rest or Sabbath keeping. Now we remember from the Ten Commandments, of course, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So now we're seeing that the writer is bringing all of this together and he's saying that you are participating in God's rest by obeying, by believing, by appropriating the message by faith. You are participating in God's own rest. Not a general rest, but the very particular rest that started after this, or on the seventh day of creation. So when God completes his work of creation, he rested so his people who have completed their service on earth will enter into his rest. And I think that's a beautiful thing, and I think we, we, we pay lip service to that at funerals, right? We say somebody's gone to their rest, or that, you know, whatever like that. Or they're not quilling anymore, those phrases come to mind. But I think even for ourselves, we don't particularly recognize the nature of that rest. It is God's own rest. It's not just individual 
finally I get to lay down and take a nap and I haven't done that in 50 years. No, it's, it's God's rest. You have no more labor. You have nothing else to do. You are dwelling in the presence of Almighty. So the person who completes his appointed work in accordance with God's will then participates in God's Sabbath rest. Now, this rest is envisioned, or that he envisions here, is patterned after God's rest on the seventh day. We've said this. It indicates a completion. Now, we won't see how that rest is actually enjoyed until we get to chapter 11. And there we also have further references to the eternal homeland, which is the heritage of believers. But we can turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, and verse 16. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now the question for us, and, and even in this context, but in general context, context, is when do you get this rest? Is it immediately at death, or is it after resurrection? Well, the writer doesn't tell us. Uh, it appears from the Old Testament that believers didn't attain their heavenly homeland immediately at death. And the writer gives us some indication of that in Hebrews 11, 39-40. He said, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So it seems... From that reading, that they're waiting for the perfection of the church, at which point they will be united with something better for us. Again, another example of the new being better than the old. It seems that they had to wait until the time of fulfillment was introduced by Christ before they could realize completely the promised blessings whose prospect enabled them to live as they did. So it could be now, this is pure speculation, but it could be that in resurrection they are in company with us and that they're going to attain the perfection and enter into God's rest then. But we don't have an express statement to that effect. And in fact, Hebrews has very little about resurrection in it. Uh, so we cannot be certain that this was the author's understanding of the matter. But what we can say for sure is that this blissful rest is unbroken fellowship with God. And that is the goal to which his people are urged to press toward. It is a final perfection which has been prepared from the time of the sacrifice of their heavenly high priest. And we'll look at uh, Apocrypha for a moment. Fourth Ezra or Fourth Ezra, depending. Uh, the King James Version of the Apocrypha has it as Ezra. For unto you is paradise opened, the tree of life is planted, the time to come is prepared, plenteous is made ready, a city is builded, and rest is allowed, yea, perfect goodness and wisdom. So even in that period between the Old and New Testaments, the idea of heavenly rest is there. And of course, we know that this writer probably would have been familiar uh, with these apocryphal writings. All right, so let's pick up reading then, uh, beginning in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, 
of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So in verse 11, he tells us that day of rest has not yet arrived. So the author moves to the main point of the paragraph, drawing a conclusion from the promise of the future rest. He said believers should be diligent to enter that rest. They cannot take God's promises for granted as if they can inherit the rest even while straying from the message of Jesus Christ. It's sort of like what John was talking about in his letters. You have to adhere to the gospel as given. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. Adhere to the gospel as it is given and you will attain this rest. So he returns to where he began in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11 by reminding his readers of the example set by the wilderness generation. They disobeyed God's commands and they failed to enter hand. That rest was made available to them, but they didn't take advantage of their privileges. And in verse 12, this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and I have fond memories of going into Miss Brenda's class on Sunday nights and hearing her begin class at times with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. She said it from memory. She didn't have to read it. Uh, but it, I just, I love that. And I think that it, it helps us in, in so many ways. And of course, one way, the ongoing conversations about the inerrancy of Scripture. I mean, that gives us a lot of confidence in what the Bible has to say to us. And, and uh, relevance and the staying power of Scripture because it is living. But the author here actually gives us something different in his context, which is that the same word that fell on disobedient ears in the wilderness has been sounded out again in these days of fulfillment. After Christ, that same word is still calling out to his people. It's not like the word of man. It's living, it's effective, and it's self-fulfilling. It diagnoses the condition of the human heart, it brings blessings to those who receive it in faith, and it pronounces judgment on those who disregard it. So what he's just described, or what he's just said, is the Word of God is like God himself. God is what God says he is. It is living. It has an inherent power that cannot be thwarted. There's nothing that can stand against the Word of God. In context here, the focus is on the effectiveness of God's judgment, but what is said here also applies more broadly to God's word in general. Whether the focus is on judgment or salvation, God's word accomplishes what God intends. Now the effectiveness of God's word is a regular theme of the Old Testament. Of course, we see that the world was created by the word of God. Then in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 to 11, we have this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Then the writer of the Hebrews goes on to compare God's word to a double-edged sword. Now it seems here that the role in judgment is brought forward. And maybe the, the author thinks of the swords of the Amalekites and the Canaanites, which cut down Israel and they attempted to enter the land after the Lord told them they could not enter because of their disobedience. In Numbers chapter 14, 
uh, verse 39 and 45. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So just like they were hewn down because of their disobedience, the Lord's word cuts down all those who disobey him. And then we have this very, very strange thing that goes on. He says, it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Now, that continues to bring forth sword imagery. But strictly speaking, it's anatomically impossible to find the point where joints and marrow can be separated. It's, it's bone. And so it's difficult to know what the author might have meant by the separation of soul and spirit as well, because there is no Old Testament or New Testament witness that clear distinctions exist between the soul and the spirit. Now there are those who have, you know, made some creative leaps to say that uh, humans are composed of three parts, and sort of the body and the soul and the spirit, and the spirit is the image of God, and the soul is the human will, and then the body is the the flesh which causes sin. That's very creative, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible tells us that God created us soul and body together. There's another possibility that this is between the will of God and the will of the flesh, but that's hedging on Gnosticism, on heresy. Uh, so what I expect is the same thing that's going on with the, with the uh, joint and marrow business, which is the impossibility of humanly constructing a scenario by which this is even possible. God is so precise that he knows the exact point where you can divide joint and marrow that we can't find it. He is so precise that he knows exactly how to separate soul from spirit, whatever that means, even though we can't fathom that. So God's word is effective. Nothing can withstand its power. And then finally, we have a focus on the inherent potency of God's word, which is confirmed by the last phrase in the verses. God's word discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word penetrates to the core of the human heart because God's word represents God himself. God knows our thoughts and our attitudes, and so his word judges our thoughts and intentions. He knows reality so that he knows whether we are believing or disbelieving, whether we are obeying or disobeying. And then in verse 13, he tells us that we can conceal our inner being from our neighbors and we can even deceive ourselves, but nothing escapes the, the scrutiny of God. Everything lies exposed before him and it is entirely powerless. And we have to give our final account to him, not to man, not to one another. I had Professor Yell probably heard me say it, talking to Kevin, he and I both had this guy. Uh, he used to say, well, you go out there and do whatever you want to do, but when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it'll be you and God, not you and Crockett. 
has a pretty good explanation of what the writer here is saying. When you stand before God, it'll all be laid to bear. It won't just be what Miss Dot knows about what I've done, or what I know about what Miss Dot's done on that beach trip she took. <laughs> but it'll be everything laid out, laid bare, stripped of all disguise and protection. It will be totally at the mercy of God, the judge of all. And now finally, verses 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we see verses 14 to 15. The high priesthood of Jesus now takes center stage. We've been talking about the old versus the new. We've been doing this back and forth thing for a while. And now, bam, we have Jesus, the high priest. And we're not done with our conversation about how much better the new is than the old. Uh, because, of course, Jesus is going to be compared to the old priestly order. And we've already seen in chapter 2 that Jesus was shown to readers as a merciful and faithful high priest. But now they are shown that he is one from whom they can receive all the strength they need to maintain their confession of faith and resist the temptation to let go and fall back into sin. In him, his people have a powerful incentive to perseverance in faith and in obedience. And I think it's sort of funny. <laughs> Humans are really... I mean, we're, we're pretty easy to manipulate in a lot of ways. If you want somebody to do something, just tell them somebody else does it better. Except when it comes to Jesus. And when it comes to Jesus, we're not willing to try. Even though, as the writer here says, we have an incentive to persevere in faith, and we have an incentive to obedience, but that incentive has become something more along the lines of, oh, poor pitiful me, I'll never be as good as Jesus, so I don't guess I should even try. No, we're called to be conformed to the image of Christ. It doesn't just happen. Now it says that Jesus passed through the heavens, through the heavenly regions in general. Now this is talking about Jesus' exaltation. So we said previously that Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. That wonderful phrase. We're, we're back to that. What we're talking about is Jesus' exaltation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. It is because Jesus has been so highly exalted that he is such a great high priest. There's already the implied contrast, which we're going to see more explicitly later, between Christ and the earthly high priests of Aaron's line. And their highest privilege, and this is, I think, a pretty powerful thing, their highest privilege was to pass once a year through the inner veil into the Holy of Holies in a material and temporary sanctuary to appear for just a little bit before God on behalf of their people. But Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He dwells in the fullness of God's presence. In verse 15, Jesus, the Son of God, is not disqualified by his divine origin from sharing in the people's troubles and sympathizing with their weaknesses. He endured every trial 
that they are likely to undergo. But he remains steadfast throughout and has passed through the heavens to the very throne of God. He experienced the full range of temptation. We don't know what forms that took. We know that the devil took him out into the wilderness and tempted him for 40 days. But was that it? No, clearly not. Uh, but to the extent, the extent to which Jesus was, was tempted, I don't think we have a, a gospel record, except that here we have this writer say, in every way that you might even think about being tempted. So the delight and joys that are offered by sin are no stranger to Jesus. He's aware of and he experienced the attractiveness of sin, and he realized that it brings pleasure, albeit momentary pleasure. He recognizes this. But Jesus never surrendered to sin's power. He shared in our weakness and he shared in our frailty, but he didn't give himself over to sin. Now, there's something I don't want you to misunderstand me when I say this, but the writer nowhere suggests that Jesus had to become identical to fallen humanity in order to redeem it. Emphasis on that word fallen there. I could rephrase that. The writer nowhere suggests that Jesus had to be born with a sin nature to redeem humanity. And in fact, in chapter 7, verse 27, he denies there that Jesus had to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. And so we have Christ the high priest, Christ the sacrifice, together. So in verse 16, the author says, Let us draw with confidence to the throne of grace. The throne of God, where Jesus, as his people's high priest, sits exalted at the Father's right hand. Now this is the antitype to the mercy seat in the earthly sanctuary. Uh, the writer speaks of this in chapter 9, verses uh, 1 to 5. I don't know why I put 24 to 26 there. It's actually 2 to 5. Uh, For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, uh, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory now overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Uh, you gotta love it when a writer does that to you. They give you just enough, and then that never mind. Uh, but there he's talking about, again, the old covenant, the old way of making sacrifice, the old structure, literally, of things. But now we have Christ sitting there at the throne of grace. Now what's interesting, uh, what we have identified as the mercy seat in the Tyndale New Testament, which we talked about not too long ago, as well as the Great Bible, they translated this word mercy seat as the seat of grace in both places. So in their understanding, and I think probably correctly, it was at the earthly mercy seat that the work of atonement was completed in part on the day of atonement and the grace of God was extended to his people. But the presence of Christ, with the Christian's high priest on the heavenly throne of grace, bespeaks a word of atonement completed not partially, but totally. And it's constantly available. The divine aid to help and all their need is constantly available. And because of Christ, we have free access to the throne of God, from which we may receive all grace and power required for timely help in the hour of trial and crisis.
That's where we'll stop with Hebrews. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Methodes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church.